So come now to the scripture and I ask you to please uh, pray with me. Father in heaven, um, your word is a lamp to us and a light to us. We pray that it would be that for us this morning. So work. Um, Many of us find ourselves distracted by various things, weighted down by others, some perhaps even disinterested. So I would pray that you would work in us now, that your word would come alive in us. It is alive, the scripture says, and so I I pray that it would be alive in us, uh, turn our heads, hearts, minds, whole lives to trust in Jesus. In this I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Isaiah in chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, please. I'm going to read um, the first 17 verses. This is a little complicated, so I'll unpack it. Um, I'm actually going to do it differently than I did first service, so we'll see how this goes. But, uh, um, I mean, it'll be the same stuff. But, I mean, I'm not, like, changing the gospel or anything, but just a little different approach. But uh, Isaiah chapter 7, 1 through 17. So just, just mark this in your mind as we read through it. This is the word of God. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but it could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and uh, Shear Jazub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the sons of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask for a sign of the Lord your God, that it be deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. 
the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from it, I'm sorry, from Judah, the king of Assyria. And then we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, Judah, ancient Judah, is in trouble. It's about 735 BC. Give me about six minutes to set this up historically, all right? So so set your minds to think historically. This is an important passage. This may be one of the most important passages in the Bible. And so it's helpful to see it, because if we can see it, then we can see something that's very important for us as believers in Jesus, all right? So it's worth the work. It's worth the work. So Judah, ancient Judah is is in trouble. Remember, there's northern kingdom, southern kingdom by this time. Israel, Chad explained this nicely last week. Israel is to the north, 10 tribes, Judah to the south. They're split. They're enemies. You say, how could that be? Think about it. Brothers, (laughs) nations, split, happens. So they're, they're enemies, all right? Now the big... The big enemy of everybody at this point in time is Assyria. And there's three ways to deal with this enemy. One is you can fight Assyria yourself. Two is you can join with other nations and fight them. Or three, you can pay protection money to Assyria. That is, you can treat them like the mob and you can say, here's some money, please don't attack us. Now, you know that never works, right? But, but that, that, that's one of the ways to handle this. Because once you get in league with the mob, then they're in league with you. And once you get in league with Assyria, then their gods are your gods as well. As so you can just see, this is, this, is, this is all a bad scene. And so that's the situation. Now, Israel to the north and Syria... I wish we didn't have Syria and Assyria in the same passage, but we do. And Israel to the north and Syria have joined together against Assyria. But they don't think they'll be strong enough to beat Assyria. And so they're trying to get Judah to join with them as well. But King Ahaz, who's king of Judah, doesn't want to do that. What he wants to do is pay tribute to Assyria. He thinks that's a better plan. And so he doesn't want to join with Israel and Syria to go against Assyria. Are you with me? Humor me. Okay, thank you. So you're with me. And, and so, so they, Israel and, and, and Syria, decide to come against Judah. Their thought is, we can, we can destroy, we can beat them, we can capture them, we can depose Ahaz, and we can put this guy, what's his name? He's in here somewhere. Uh, Tabil, as the puppet king. And he'll go along with us. And then the three nations of us might be strong enough to go against Assyria. So Israel and Syria come against Judah. But they can't defeat Judah. Oh, they devastate Judah. We can't even in America understand this. We have 9-11. That was bad enough. But this is real war against Judah. And, and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, are, are die in, in this effort. But still, Judah maintains. But, but, but before all this begins, 
when Ahaz realizes that they're plotting against him, he and all Israel gets he and all Judah become afraid. How does it put it in verse uh, two? It says that um, Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. That's a metaphor. That's an image of being really afraid, right? They're shaking. So what Ahaz does is he goes down to where the where his people are most vulnerable. He goes down by the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now that may not sound like a great point of vulnerability to you, but if you're a, if you're a military strategist, you would realize that that was the water supply coming into Jerusalem. And that's where they were most vulnerable because if their water supply was cut off, then that would be it. There'd really be no good way to defend themselves. And so Ahaz is at the water supply where his people are most vulnerable. And so God says to the prophet Isaiah, go down with your son who has an interesting name, uh, Sheer Jazub, which means an, a remnant shall return. It's kind of an occupational hazard of being a prophet's kid. You kind of get drugged into this. It's been mentioned to me from time to time by some children of my own. Uh, and so this is to be an encouraging word. When he shows up and is in, introduced, Ahab is to say, oh yes, a remnant will be preserved. Yes, good, God is with us. He'll keep us safe in the midst of this. And so Isaiah goes and he meets Ahaz at Ahaz's point of vulnerability and says what God always says when he shows up at points of vulnerability in his people. He says, don't be afraid. And you've been there. You've been there. At the point most vulnerable. I don't know what your most vulnerable points have been in the course of your life. I can think of mine. I can think of mine presently. I can think of those places in my life. You can think of those places in your life. Whether it's with people or whether it's situations or whether it's health or whether it's money or whether it's family or whether it's whatever it is. You can think of those points when you're most afraid and God shows up and says what? Don't be afraid. Now, why does he say that? Because you're afraid. <laughs> and, and it's reasonable, all things considered. Everything you can see, it's reasonable that, that you should be afraid at that point in time. God gets it. He understands. Oh, yeah, don't be afraid at this point in time. And Ahaz is afraid when he looks at the water supply and says, I have no way to protect this. So the prophet comes and says, don't be afraid. Why? Well, don't let your hearts be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. In other words, the way God looks at the situation is, Ahaz, Judas, my people, these are just two smoldering firebrands. They're, they're going to burn themselves out, so don't worry about them. Now, everything looks to Ahaz as if he's going to be burned out and not them. And that's the nature of faith, isn't it? Because what he's going to be called to here is faith in the end of verse nine, verse, or in verse eight, he says, well, okay, verse seven, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim, Israel will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And that of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. In other words, he's saying the best these nations have has is their kings. Implied, Ahaz, 
You have God. And so if God is for you, why are you afraid of these others? But here's what you must do, Ahaz, end of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He says, you have to trust. Be firm in your faith, you won't be afraid. Be firm in your faith, and God will be victorious. So don't be afraid, trust me. God says, in the midst of that. Now, if Ahaz had been thinking, and he should have been, he should have thought back to the great um, incident, uh, event, in the life of his people, the Exodus. He should have thought, well, I've heard these words before. I've heard these words in the Pentateuch. I've, I've heard these words when my people had left Egypt and come up to the Red Sea, and they could hear and smell Pharaoh's army coming up against them and they found themselves stuck and they found themselves vulnerable and they found themselves afraid. God said through and to Moses, be firm in faith, don't be afraid. For you will see the salvation of the Lord. So that, that really should have been going off in his head if he had followed the navigator's program of memorization of the Bible. Which have really helped him a lot at that point in time. He said, oh, wait a minute. That's an echo. I've heard that. So then in verse 10, and this is just just mind-boggling. Verse 10, And the Lord said to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. In other words, you get the sense that God knew that Ahaz was wavering. And so he says, here, I'll help you. Ask me for a sign. Ask me to do something. And I don't care if this is, it, it has no boundaries. It could be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. I, I wish, could you imagine? I mean, God was great at signs. I mean, he, he could take a bush and put it on fire and it wouldn't burn. I mean, that's impressive. Right? He, he could turn the sun back on a sundial. Wow. And so you're just kind of waiting as you read that. What's he going to ask God to do? And he says, no. And you said, yes. Use your head, buddy. You're wavering in faith. Try to get God to do something that will knock your socks off. And you'll say, well, surely if he can do that, he can do this. But he doesn't. And, 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 and Isaiah feels it. Isaiah understands why he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Not because he's righteous and pious and all that. He doesn't ask God for a sign because he doesn't want a sign. He doesn't want to be convinced. He doesn't want to really follow God. He he just sort of wants to go his own way. He's already got it figured out. He already knows he trusts Assyria and he wants to pay the money. And he thinks if he does and incorporates their gods into his life as well as God and all of that, that he'll be fine. And so he doesn't want a sign because if he gets a sign, then he'll have to follow it. And so he rejects all of that. And so Isaiah then turns really from talking to Ahaz and talks to the whole house of David. And that should be another point that should, should cause bells and whistles to go off in, in, in Ahaz's head. He says, house of David. You go, house of, oh yes, I'm in the house of David. I'm one of the ones uh, that sits on the throne of David. And God has said there'll be always one sitting on this throne. So, so why should I be worried? We're not going to be destroyed because, because God's already made this promise. And so... Why should I worry? But this is House of David. And then he speaks to the whole of them. The U-Y-O-U's there are plural. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Wow. So Ahaz, since you won't pick one, the Lord says, I'll pick one for you. I don't know about you, but that's pretty exciting to think what's God gonna, what's God gonna pick to impress us about himself? And, and he combines so much in this sign. One, it's just miraculous, but two, it solves everything. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, the miraculous thing is that a virgin somehow is going to conceive and bear a son. And, and, and the thing that solves everything is the fact that he will be God with us, which is what Emmanuel means. God says, I will show up. I will show up in such a way that if you can trust me, I'll deliver. Now, uh, this is one of those passages that every theologian exegete scratches their head about. And they say, well, how, how, did, how did Ahaz really understand this did, did he think it was actually going to be fulfilled in the sense that perhaps, perhaps he thought there's an unmarried woman right now who is a virgin who will get married and have a child and name the child Emmanuel, and that will be a sign to us that God is with us. And you go, okay, but A, it didn't happen. And B, that's not all that impressive. I mean, unmarried women get married all the time and have relations with their husband and have children and give them prophetic names. <laughs> Happens in the Bible. So you know, that's okay, but that doesn't really, you know. But, but maybe he's thinking there's a, a woman out there who's never had relations with a man and yet finds herself with a child. Now that's impressive. God can do that. So we keep reading. We, we read along and we, we find... There's all kinds of words about the fact that, 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 that Israel and Syria will be destroyed and not be a problem. And there's other words that Assyria, however, will be a problem to Judah. But don't worry, because eventually they'll get theirs anyway. But then when we get to chapter 8, verse 3, we find there is a son that's born. But it's to Isaiah, it seems. I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. So it's prophetess's wife probably, and they give him a prophetic name as, as well, uh, Mahir Shalalalalala, Hazbaz, and it means that, that it's going to come quickly, that the spoil is going to come quickly, the prey will come quickly. And so you get this sense, as we did with the other prophecy, that, okay, it's going to come quickly, but still we don't find what we expect to see. And then the end of verse 8 in Isaiah 8, we see Isaiah call out, O Emmanuel, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word and it will not stand. For God is with us. And so Isaiah is seeing something. He's, he's seeing Emmanuel. He's seeing God with us. And he says, if God is with us, then the other nations of the world will be destroyed. We won't have to worry about them. Uh, and then the end of chapter 8, God says to Isaiah, trust me. But yet we're still left, left scratching our heads a bit. What? What about this virgin to give birth to this child, this Emmanuel? But then chapter 9, 
Chapter 9 comes and we see, oh, maybe this sounds like that child. Because when this child is given, when this child is born, darkness will turn to light, uh, sorrow uh, to joy, defeat uh, to victory, a burden to peace. And he says, for to us a child is born, a son is given. He'll be a ruler. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This, his counsel will make us wonder. Mighty God, oh my. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will, will, will do this. And we're thinking, okay, this makes sense. This is the kind of thing that really is huge, like as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven. This, who could accomplish this other than God? And then chapter 11 tells us of this one who will come, this shoot from the stump of, of Jesse. As Chad preached last week from Isaiah 35, this one will come and will see deliverance and will see healing and will see great joy. And then we go all the way to Isaiah 52 and this one who will come, he's not all that impressive physically, but, but, but he's the very one upon whom our iniquity will be put and he will really deliver us. He'll really save us. And we see in Isaiah 65 the great ultimate picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Hmm. And then God comes to this man Joseph and this woman Mary. We heard about it as Jill read for us from Matthew chapter 1 earlier. Matthew's already laid out the genealogy of Jesus in the sense of saying he belongs to David and also to Abraham. So there's Joseph, betrothed to Mary. Now you know this, you know the betrothal was something very significant, more significant even than our engagement in the sense that when a couple was betrothed, they were all but married, if you will. The only way to get out of it was be through something called divorce. And, and, and they weren't sexually active, intimate with each other during this time. And if they would be, it would be like adultery. It would be sinful. And now Joseph finds out that Mary is going to have a child. And Joseph knows this child isn't his. And we kind of gloss over that. But, but to think about the impact that that would have on a man, even in our most promiscuous days, even in Hollywood today, such a thing would be a scandal. If there was a couple that close and one was pregnant, she was pregnant and, and found out that it wasn't her significant other's child, it would be a scandal. And that's what was going on in Joseph's mind must have been the shame, the anger, the disappointment, the questioning of himself. Why did she do this? But the scriptures say that Joseph was a righteous man. This is one of the most powerful expressions, most powerful verses, I think, perhaps, that we come across. That he was such a righteous man. That even in the midst of that pain, he decided, as the scripture puts it like this, to put her away or to divorce her quietly. 
That's not how we often handle such things and the sins of, of other people against, especially if they're against us. We have a tendency to handle them rather noisily. We want everybody to know what they've done. We want it to go viral. I, I guess it kind of did. But, but, but only after. We've, we got a good explanation of the whole thing. But he didn't want it to go viral at that point in time. He, he wanted, he still loved her. And again, just, just, just meditate upon that this Christmas season. What it means to love like that. So that you have a great desire to actually hide the publicness of someone else's public sin. And to quietly deal with it. And so uh, there he was making plans. How can I do this without anybody really knowing? And he didn't do it to protect himself. He did it to protect her because he loved her. But he knew he had to. He had to divorce her. This had to be done. But then the angel comes to him and, and clears it all up in a way. Because now what he has to grapple with is the fact that she's having a child because as Luke puts it, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And so this child in her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And now he recognizes the very fact of who he is. And, and bells and whistles should be going off in his head. He really should be thinking uh, about Isaiah. Matthew was because we have it here. In verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. He gets in a, a new Joshua. Jesus is the, is the equivalent in the New Testament of the word Joshua, named Joshua in the Old Testament. He knows what Joshua did. He came in and defeated enemies and conquered the land and brought the people into it. And so saying, yes, okay, now I get it. This very one, Jesus, he'll save us from our real enemies, from the sins, our sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Whatever it meant to Ahaz and Isaiah in their day, we know what it means. We know what it pointed to. We know where it was going. We know why it was there. We know why all that took place. God is, God is really with us. And this whole idea of the virgin birth has come under lots of sort of historical criticism over the years. I don't have time nor inclination to deal with all the criticisms. But we, we need to realize that the first skeptic of the virgin conception, really, was Mary. Because when she was told this, she said, how can this be? She could have used a wonderful little pun and said, this is inconceivable. <laughs> right? She probably wasn't that clever. When you get woken up by an angel, you're probably not thinking clearly. But she said, how did, and the angel said, no, 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 no. Nothing's impossible with God. It's a great little vignette uh, told about C.S. Lewis. If you see Rick, tell him I used the C.S. Lewis quote. Um, he'll be proud of me. But uh, uh, 
there's this uh, little vignette between Lewis and a, an unbelieving friend. And the unbelieving friend, they're listening to Christmas carols being sung, maybe like we sang this morning about the virgin birth. And the unbelieving friend says to, to C.S. Lewis, he says, you know, I'm so glad uh, we understand these things better than they did. And, and Lewis says, what do you mean? He says, well, these things, he says, what things? He says, well, we know that a virgin can't conceive a child, can't be with child. And presumably, Lewis, a little bit mm, out of sorts, said to his friend, you don't think they knew that? And then he paused and he said, that's the point. That's the real point here. That what's impossible for us is possible with God. Once God enters the equation, why would we doubt it? We doubt this, we doubt everything. All the miracles and the resurrection and everything else about Jesus. Why, why are we doubting this? Why are we questioning why are we questioning this? Because you see, this is consistent with everything else. Genesis 3 says it's out of the seed of the woman that, that, that will come this one who will crush the head of the serpent. The promise to Abraham out of your seed. David, to sit on your throne, one from your family, if you will. But also, God says he's going to come. Ezekiel 34, we, God says, I'm the shepherd of Israel. I will come and rescue my sheep. And so this expectation that God is going to come as well. And how is that, how is that really going to work? We find from the seed of the woman Mary. But also, God comes. And he'll be Emmanuel. God with us. And so here he is. Who else can save us? He's our mediator. He's the perfect representation, perfect representative of God to us because he is God. What does John put it in John chapter 1? Not only the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but verse 18. um, That the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who else can make God known to us other than God? And he makes the holiness and the righteousness of God known to us in Jesus. But he also makes the love of God made known to us in Jesus. And then he represents us to God as well. In our weakness and even in our guilt as it's imputed upon him. And he represents us to God first to obey in every way for us. And then to take the guilt of our sin upon himself that he would die so we would live. And, and just in the same way with Ahaz... When we hear Emmanuel, the next line should be, don't be afraid. In fact, Isaiah would go on in Isaiah 41 and uh, verse top of the page, left-hand column. Verse 41, verse 10, we sing this in another hymn. But it's fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I'll help you, I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. First he says, fear not. And then he says, don't be dismayed. He covers everything. Because the fear means that you're afraid of what's happening at the moment. Don't be dismayed. That is, don't worry about what's going to happen in the future. Don't worry. How can that be? He says, because I'm with you. Because you see, once he's come and once he's delivered, once he's taken our sin, once he's forgiven, once we believe, of what is there to be afraid because he's with us. We don't need to be afraid with God, afraid of God anymore in that fear sense. You know, the evil one comes to us all the time and says, you know, if God ever gets a hold of you, you're toast. 
Jesus comes along and says, I'm with you. God has gotten a hold of you. You're saved. Trust him. Trust him. Don't be afraid of him anymore. Go to him in every situation, in every circumstance. I don't know about you, but when I sin, my first inclination often is to run. I don't want it to be seen. I don't want it to be known. I just want to run away from it and hope nobody noticed. Then I realize God noticed. But then I can still go to him. Why? Because he noticed. And because in Jesus, he's still with me. He says, I forgive you. Come, 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 come. We don't have to be afraid of any circumstance. Why? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? If he's interceding for us in every circumstance and situation. And then we have to ask the question, well, then why am I so afraid? And he goes, I get it. I understand. That's why I have to keep telling you, don't be afraid. I'm with you. So I have to keep saying, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Even the end of your age. I've rolled against. I'll be with you. Trust me. Be firm in your faith and see the salvation of the Lord. He says, trust me. Don't. Don't be afraid. And still in this day, people don't want this sign. They don't want the sign of a virgin giving birth. They don't want this God-man. They don't want God with us. They just want Jesus, this good guy, being around us. And, and perhaps he could be a good example. And, and if we concentrate on him, even if just one day a year, like we concentrate on the good presidents or we contemplate on St. Valentine or, 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 or the pilgrims and they're giving thanks, whatever it is that we set aside for a day in the year, maybe that'll help us and spur us on to be better people. And at the end of the day, things will be peaceful. And sometimes on Christmas Day it is, and sometimes on Christmas Day it isn't. But the other 360 whatever days there are, there's never peace. There's always fear. All these generations. Because we don't want this sign that this one who is God, man, came and dwelt among us and is with us even still. We don't want it. But he says to his people, I want you to know this. I want you to know that I'm with you. So he gave us signs. Give us water to say, here's cleansing. Don't be afraid. Trust me. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, As often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? Declaring he's here. He's with us. He's come. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He gave himself. He rose. He ascended. He rules and reigns. He sent his spirit. And he dwells with us by his spirit. And and, and even at this meal, now... He's here. We don't, we don't believe that the bread or the juice changes in any particular way so that he's here corporally, physically. 
but he's here among us spiritually. And you say, isn't he always with us spiritually? Yeah, he is. But he gave us this to say, now, remember, I really am with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. I got the present. I got the future. I have the past. Trust me. Trust me. You say, how's he with us here? Well, spiritually, what's that mean? I don't know. Other than he's present with us as he's present with us as we come to this table. He's here. He's with us. Don't be afraid or dismayed. Don't be afraid. Go to God. Don't be afraid. Live out the moment and the future. He really is with you. He really is with us. Let's pray, Father. We pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we'd know that we're in the presence of Jesus now and always. That Emmanuel, that he has come, that God, you've come and you dwell among us. And for that, we're grateful. So I pray it would have the effect on us that it's intended to have. That it would cause us to stand firm in faith. Not being afraid of the present. Not being worried about the future. But trusting. God, we bring all kinds of things this morning that cause us to be afraid. Hmm. And I pray that you would enable us to know that you're with us, that you're for us, that you've met every condition, Jesus. That we trust in him, in you. And we needn't be afraid. We needn't be dismayed. In Jesus' name. Amen.